So this is the question we can ask, uh, questions and reflection we can keep coming back to today over and over again. And again, I think in terms of uh, remembering these two responses, you know, I'm here to survive, to make it through. This could also include I'm here to survive with as much comfort as possible. A sort of eat, drink, and be merry view of things, like trying to get as much as I can get, as much pleasure as I can get. Not to think of it as like moving from that attitude to this other attitude, I'm here to love and to care and to belong and to rejoice, to be free. But but maybe better is in understanding um, like what we connect with, what we include. Is this you know naked little beast that wants to stay warm and stay fed and be comfortable? Like the way we express the, you know, what we might call the more more mature attitude, more spiritual attitude of I'm here to love, I'm here to take care of, might depend on understanding, being intimate with the part of the mind, the conditioned mind that is here to survive and to be safe and to get, you know, we might, and you know, in order to be really happy and free in the mature sense of the word, in the spiritually developed sense of the word, we might be completely dependent on this primitive, this part that maybe we're afraid of or we don't like. I mean, one of the reasons I'm assuming today will be really useful for all of us is you know, as we share together how many mistakes, how many embarrassing moments we've had around money, around livelihood, around success or failure in life, you know, in that sense of meritocracy, you know, how many times we didn't make the hurdle. I remember my sister, I think she's okay me telling this story. I'll find out maybe. (laughs) But she went out for track in high school. We were both in track in high school. And one of her first meets, she tripped over there. She was doing the hurdles, tripped over the hurdle and broke her collarbone. (laughs) I just remember how painful that was on so many levels. (laughs) Just, uh, you know, I stuck, I stuck to just running without having to jump over anything. It just seemed a lot easier. You know, just how many times in terms of trying to be successful at something, you know, we fell on our face one way or another. We didn't make it. We didn't get into the college we applied to. We didn't get the girl or the guy we wanted. Um, didn't get the job. Just so many ways we've tried to succeed and then haven't. Tried to pretend we have money when we don't, you know. Like, so much of that primitive part of the mind is, <clears throat> like, how can I dress myself up, adorn myself in a way that <clears throat> will get the response, make me feel safe because you think this about me. Oh, he's special because he 
you know, has this kind of watch or this kind of cell phone or some of you know we had a burglary back in December and my computer was stolen so now I have an Apple computer you know and it's like I feel different (laughs) I'm the kind of person who has an Apple computer and it's you know it's interesting it's both sort of I, I still feel a little that part of the mind feels a little lifted by that adornment and I also feel a little cheated by it because you know it it basically does what any other computer does. (laughs) So it's not really different. So it just delivers sort of in this this very superficial way and and, in a superficial way that that, uh, we on some level, sometimes with more clarity than other moments, we understand that it's just vacant. It's not as meaningful as we might imagine. I'm not putting Apple products down, by the way. It just It's such a, a good example because it's a company, besides you know delivering a good product, it's a company that's really emphasized um, style or personality. Like you're buying, an, in part, you're buying an identity. You're not just buying something that connects you to the Internet. That helps us become who we want to become. And this is what I mean by adornments. And our adornments don't always have to be expensive because sometimes who we want to become is like anti-wealth. But it's it's the same sort of thing. It's just, you know, we've defined it slightly differently. And in this way, you know, we're so much involved in creating our world. And we have to... You know, part of what we're going to do today is we're going to understand how we're creating our world around issues of money, livelihood, and success. And just in light of that, I'll read this famous passage from the beginning of the Dhammapada, a collection of verses from the Buddha and other sort of ancient wisdom from the time of the Buddha. So in the first chapter, it begins... All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a corrupted mind, and suffering follows as the wagon wheel follows the hoof of the ox. All experience is preceded by mind, led by mind, made by mind, speak or act with a peaceful mind, and happiness follows like a never-departing shadow. He abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me, For those carrying on like this, hatred does not end. She abused me, attacked me, defeated me, robbed me. For those not carrying on like this, hatred ends. Hatred never ends through hatred. By non-hate alone does it end. This is an ancient truth. We don't need much more instruction than that. So I thought we'd do a, a guided meditation now where we're looking, in a sense, at these two questions and uh, using them in a, in a way to open up our lives. So feel free to stretch out your legs so you'll be comfortable. We'll, this reflection, guided meditation, will take about 30 minutes, I'm guessing.
Leslie, will you check to make sure that the two fans in the bathrooms aren't on? Just it's the bottom switch. comfortably. Take a couple of full and deep breaths. So we're taking the time to slowly fill and empty the lungs. begin this reflection, this meditation, <coughs> by bringing to mind times when we've observed animals going about their business. In my case, I might bring to mind the squirrels that I watch in the backyard. And we want to cut through any romantic notions we have about animals and just understand the experience as clearly, directly as possible. As we remember this activity of animals (coughs) doing what they do, whether you're bringing to mind birds or any wild beast you've seen, going about their business. First, we just get a sense of how this beast is unadorned, completely naked, outside, completely naked. Probably involved, at least most of the time, in the search for food. or taking care of its shelter. Or protecting itself from other beasts, other creatures. Defending its food. And even when these beasts are engaged in play, It's very serious, this play, often, in the sense of having some function in strengthening some particular skill. Like squirrels might wrestle with their sisters or brothers. But this playful wrestling is really about developing skills to run away and the skill of fending off 
So without judging this activity of the animal positively or negatively, we're trying to see it honestly, directly. Just getting a sense of the natural activity of animals. Of course, we are an animal ourselves. So by remembering perhaps a more simple beast, we might better understand what's moving in our own heart and mind. You can even bring to mind more simple animals. Maybe you've observed the movement of ants at times. Just how the ants seem to be willing to do what's next, to toe the line, to follow the one in front of it. Even when injured, ants seem to want to keep doing their business. One thing we can notice is what we might call this vigilance or commitment of these beasts. The persistence. We've watched birds, robins looking for worms, listening, poking around, woodpeckers. can translate what we're observing, what we're remembering from our observations of animals. We can begin to translate or connect it with what we notice in our own mind and heart. This primal need for warmth, not to be ashamed, and not to be unconscious of this need, this compulsion in the mind to stay warm. Just noticing how we've dressed the body today protected the body from cold today. And just the sense of the proximity of the threat, 
you know, just 30 feet away is this cold that we find threatening. And that we're dependent on these clothes and dependent on the furnace burning the natural gas and pushing it around. Sitting here, even in this quiet way, the body is burning the calories of the food we've eaten recently, generating heat. And if we don't continue to put calories into the body, eventually the body runs out. We don't continue to drink water. There's no way for the body to flush out its toxins. And we get sick and the body dies. So we're dependent in a very real way. This life depends on water depends on this body, this life, eating other life. And in some ways we're, in this primitive way, we're dependent on affection. even something as simple as touch, dependent to some degree in being connected with others, having a place. And so we can feel that as best we can, tuning into these primal needs or dependencies without being embarrassed or judgmental. It's as if we could directly tap into the reptilian brain, tuning into the frightened beast, the vulnerable creature here that seeks warmth and food and fresh water and social affection, social belonging. The same is true in our relationship with pain. So we're noticing how this simple, vulnerable beast, how it feels threatened by physical discomfort, physical pain.
from this point of view of the primitive beast, pain is a real threat. It means something is wrong. From this simple primitive place, comfort is good, pain is bad. It's as simple as that. So we're appreciating this conditioning in the mind, appreciating it because this is how it is. And it's in the not recognizing of it that creates all kinds of neurotic patterns. When we're not aware, not connected with this simple, vulnerable, frightened, needy beast, then the mind, the body, runs and runs without understanding why it's running. In the same way, you probably have seen an infant child that's just a few weeks old. And if it becomes overwhelmed, it just starts to scream. In a way, it's tantruming or screaming or it's fit that it's gotten itself into. It isn't really helping. So when we're feeling exposed, needy, and we're not aware that the beast is frightened and needy, then it can set in motion this blind action, looking for love in all the wrong places. We have this powerful image of Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill only for it to fall back down again and again. Or the Buddha uses the image of a a dog trying to get some nutrition chewing on a bone that's completely bleached white with no meat left on it. Yet it chews and it chews, but not getting anything from it. But there's another way to relate to this vulnerable, needy, frightened beast. We can care about it. Seeing part of our life's work to recognize the way that it is and to care about it.
to feel the generosity of that caring, the power, the wholesomeness, even the joy of caring for this life as it actually is. What a relief it is not to have to be in denial. Feeling the expansion, the lightness of being wise, understanding that the conditioned mind is frightened and needy, vulnerable, living in the world of good and bad and birth and death. In a sense, the poignancy of being a vulnerable beast breaks the heart open, revealing a great depth and breadth great lightness and a great power, the heart that cares, the heart that's capable of being generous and taking care of and laughing and being joyful and letting things be the way that they are, not needing the world not needing the vulnerability to be other than what it is. Seeing as part of our life's work, the tender care of all of these hungry beasts. First and foremost, this one right here in our heart. I care about you. I care about your physical needs. I care about your social needs. I care about all of your needs. And I'm here to take care of you. And I'm going to do my best going to really listen, but I'm not going to be confused by the pain of your needs, because it doesn't help. So we'll take about five or Ten minutes of silence now. In practice, if you can, going back and forth between these two worldviews, being identified with the hungry beast, the vulnerable beast, the needy beast, all the things you're sure you need in order to feel safe, and then flipping from there to this wise, grandmotherly, open, loving heart that understands 
the neediness and cares about it. Isn't confused by the pain of neediness, the pain of vulnerability. Is able to connect and care. See if you can go back and forth so it becomes very familiar when you're in one or the other world. you might discover that many of the so-called noble things you've done in your life have really been the activity of the needy beast, the frightened beast.
Is there actually any problem inhabiting both worlds? The world of the frightened, needy, hungry beast, and the world of the one who cares and loves and is willing to be free in the midst of vulnerability. letting both worlds inform each other. Feel free to stretch out your legs. We'll take some time just to see if people have any responses from that meditation. And if you do speak up, please say your name and make sure you're speaking in a way that uh, you feel most people will be able to hear you or everybody will be able to hear you. So just uh, reflections of these two worldviews and uh, what did you recognize? Did you recognize both? Could you recognize both? Do they get along together or do they feel to compete? Yeah. Um, is addiction tied to uh, is addiction a little louder? Is addiction is there a relation to addiction and uh, ignoring the beast? Well, yeah, I think uh, I think uh, the basic pattern of addiction is uh, we, I'm you know what addiction is in a way is we think we're satisfying the beast, but actually we're. We, the beast actually can't be satisfied in the way we imagine. So that's, that's the basic pattern of addiction, is we think one more time, and the beast is going to be satisfied. Oh, I was thinking, like, um, like human touch. Uh-huh. If you lack that, then you feed it another way, like with sugar. Yeah, yeah. And so that, feeds the, that stimulates the part of the brain that wants that, but it's missing... It's not being fed in another way, so I don't know. I mean, is that? Yeah. Well, I think there absolutely. I mean, there's there's so many different uh, layers to how the mind. Once the mind <coughs> misunderstands the beast, see the basic problem is 
the mind misunderstands the beast, misunderstands that <coughs> primitive part of the brain-mind sensitivity. And uh, it tries to, it assumes that that vulnerability, that neediness, that desire for warmth or whatever, it assumes that it's bad. That being vulnerable, not having enough is bad. But see, that's just what a sensitive, primitive creature feels. It's like there isn't an ever enough. Because that's, it's just not on that primitive level. The, 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 the realization that this is enough, that's, a, that's something the mature mind understands. This is enough. I'm okay with this. But the primitive, it's just too primitive, you know. It's like you see that. Uh, if I give my cat too much to eat, she'll eat it all and then she'll vomit. Because, you know, we feed her just once a day and, you know, there's that deep instinct that if there's food, you should, you should put it down, you know, until you can't put it down anymore. You know, and one of the nice things about eating with other people is we're less likely to do that ourselves because it's embarrassing, you know. And we have things from our religious traditions that say gluttony is bad. But our tendency is to be gluttons. You know, if we can, if no one's looking, you know, to sort of... Because who knows, we may need that layer of fat come January, you know, and we run out of natural gas and, you know, they sort of thoughts we maybe don't let ourselves think of. But it's still, they're still operating in the mind. But what I was saying before is that we have this, you know, the basic addictive pattern is feeling like we have to keep feeding the beast as if that's going to make the vulnerability go away, but it doesn't actually make it go away. It doesn't mean we shouldn't feed it or turn the heat up or those things, but we shouldn't do it with the idea that we're not going to be vulnerable anymore. Because that's just the way it is, that vulnerability. Other thoughts from the reflection there, Rebecca? Um, well, I had a, a recollection of uh, an example that I think I was going back and forth. Can you wait once? Kay, would you shut the uh, fan off? It's on the thermostat, uh, second button, uh, the middle button there. There you go. Great. And then let's do, will you remember to turn it up again when the discussion is over. So I think I was going back and forth between the two. It was an instance where a friend wanted me to watch her child for a weekend. And at first I was, I mean, I, I accepted it, but I wasn't happy about it. And, and I believe that it was the primitive brain that wanted to be liked, wanted to be accepted by this friend that accepted this. Mm-hmm. You know, and but then I realized if I continue this way, it's going to be a very painful weekend. So drop this and let's look at kind of just look at the little boy for who he is instead of this thing. And then it went back to and how would I feel if I needed to bring my son somewhere and that was their attitude. So then the primitive brain kicked in again, protection for him. But then it kind of opened it up. Once I could see that I was doing that, then it let go. And I actually was able to enjoy the little boy very wholly in the moment. I actually felt really sad when the weekend was done. So it was like I kept flipping back and forth. Yeah. 
and really understanding that our attitude, there's a lot of, this is actually how we participate. And this will really help us as we get more specifically into work and livelihood and money and issues of success, is that there, we may not, you know, given that we're in this interdependent world, we may not have a lot that, we may be limited or maybe we are limited in terms of what we can do in terms of our livelihood and our success. But there's a lot of room for how we understand it, how we relate to it. And just being really on the lookout for all those things that trigger that primal fear. Like, maybe if this is successful, she'll want you to take care of her kid. And then maybe the word will get out that you take care of kids. <laughs> and so you can feel that primal fear like your life is going to yeah, be eaten up. All those things, yeah. Like, um, yeah, I'll never be able to say no. At lunch, if anybody has children, <laughs> can talk to her about that. <laughs> but that's that's exactly what we want to notice. It. You know, we want to bring this online. So when <clears throat> our boss she puts more work down in front of us, we we understand that part of what's happening here is this primitive beast that feels its life is threatened, and just to understand that that's what's going on, and uh, and see that allows that having that on the table, being conscious of it, actually allows for a a deeper, broader, wiser response as well. We can't get rid of the primal response, but we can make it conscious. And that really makes a difference in our work lives and love lives and all of our lives. Yeah, thanks, Rebecca. Other thoughts come to mind? Yes, say your name. I'm Lenise. Lenise? a couple bodies um, in the dying process uh, a couple people and you know there's the there's the level of work of you know providing ourselves with food and shelter but in a more primal direct way our work is to take the next breath and it's just so interesting and and uh, even overwhelming in moments to be with someone in those last hours, days, where their each breath is like a lot of work, and it's like the each time the the body, the mind, whatever it sort of picks up, it sort of picks up its responsibility and it does it as best it can. You know, given all the obstructions, you know, lungs are half full of water or the whatever you know the the physiological issues might be but the body just does the next breath as best it can you know and pauses for an instant and then does it again and so there is something about this um, the work of life I mean life is work whether it's breathing or you know just when you when you think like if we could just strip away the clothes and then the layer of skin 
And we just get a sense that on all, in so many ways, on all subtle and gross levels, the body is working. You know, so just on this physiological level, the body is working to survive, to get rid of toxins, to keep the heat in or to get rid of the heat, to digest the food, to break down this, to communicate with itself. And so this is the, this, like recognizing this level of exposure is really useful, but we have to relate to it with wisdom. Otherwise, what it tends to lead to are neurotic uh, attempts to be sort of super in charge, super in control. You know, and we just want to use our lunch break to run to the co-op and spend $120 on vitamins or the newest supplements that somebody is saying is good for us. And, you know, I do already do Pilates and yoga and Qigong and Tai Chi, and I'm wondering now whether I should do this laughter yoga I hear about, you know, because it's supposed to be really healing. I mean, it never stops, so even in sort of circles. Like, one of the things I've realized so much in my own life in terms of success and, you know, it's like... Uh, Retreats, studying with certain teachers, it's, it's like the next achievement. And maybe on some level it would be really good for me, but for sure I see that that hunger, it's a, a neurotic acting out of this basic vulnerability. That, and if I make peace with that vulnerability, then the need to go on that retreat looks different. But if I don't make peace with that basic vulnerability that life is work and it never ends until it ends, basically. Uh, then we end up doing all kinds of unfortunate things thinking that we're going to address this basic anxiety or this basic um, vulnerability. But we don't, maybe we, it's okay to be alive in what it means to be alive. Other thoughts? Yeah, Craig. Um, just recently, I started doing a practice, um, I guess, based on a body scan, where I, where I start with um, different organs, the scale, and the ears, and, and take a moment of gratitude, uh, you know, for the ears, that structure, how what that does for me. And then I started working my way through the body, trachea, very grateful for what it does. And as I worked my way down, there was was an instant fear, what am I going to do when I get to the pancreas? Because I had that cancer tumor there, and it's caused me a lot of trouble. But just seeing that fear, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. I mean, can you imagine if we did that where we went through the body and not just our body, but maybe all aspects of our life, both the intimate awareness of our body, but the friends, the jobs. And we express gratitude, but we also, like Craig's last point, but we also accepted that and it might you and you might not always be healthy. You know, or you, you might not always be contributing 
to my welfare. This is true with our lovers. It's true with our organs. It's true with the environment. You know, sometimes the environment, the weather, is very protecting and soothing. When my wife is in Thailand, she called me a couple days ago and just saying how healing it is to be in warm, moist air. (laughs) Of course, when she called, it was 50 degrees that day. (laughs) I didn't tell her that. (laughs) She was thinking January, Minnesota. (laughs) But sometimes weather isn't that way. And it's the same thing. It's like, can we appreciate the conditions when they're nice? And can we also accept that they won't always be nice? That they won't always be healthy? Because then, then we're really touching that we're vulnerable. Like It's really beautiful to have that gratitude and that appreciation for life when it's working. But then how about when it's not working? Like it was a little weird thing that happened to me last night. I was working relatively late at night at home, and all of a sudden the doorbell rang, and that's a little weird. And of course, there was nobody there, so it was probably some those young people. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know who it was. But but just that it opens a window that you know not everybody here you know in my vicinity has my best interests in mind. No, I'm not saying they're out to get me, but maybe. But but the fact is, I don't know. Like, why would somebody do that? It's just a little thing, but it just opens up that that truth. You know, and this is true at work. It's true in, in all places. We don't really... And, and the point is, we want to understand, like, not be surprised that... Uh, somebody can be in a really bad place at work and what makes sense to them is to mess us up. It's like, uh, I don't know, I always feel funny mentioning things I watch, but I have been watching Downton Abbey on PBS. I'm sure a lot of you are. <laughs> it sounds like it's a, like a sort of a cultural phenomenon and it seems really well written and I'm really enjoying it. And uh, one of the things that happens are these two sisters uh, do terrible things to each other and because they're hurting. And things that affect their lives in a long-term way completely make their life go in a different trajectory. And it's just interesting how we could resent that, hate that person forever, but we could also understand that when, I'm, when a mind is under a lot of pain, confused by a lot of pain, it does things that are really stupid. Because it doesn't make the pain go away. But somehow, in that moment, it feels like the right thing to do. Maybe time for a couple more comments. Yeah, Evelyn. One thought on my mind is, is the Maslow's needs, Maslow's needs scale, and the way I maybe look at it, I don't know if it's true or not, is like, is it true that we need to satisfy the lower one before we can get to the higher one? Or do we just, I don't know, go back and forth or, or um, yeah. connect wherever at different times? I think we have to understand the lower ones. 
Like I, I, I think it's possible for somebody who's done a lot of this work and really is able to see and not be surprised by the primitive urges and neediness and vulnerability that I think they could cycle back to a time when they're dying, they're really sick, they're in poverty, they're in a war. And so in terms of their primitive needs, they're very, very exposed but not be, be, be able to maintain uh, a powerful compassion for their exposure instead of being swept away by the pain and reactive to the pain. That seems possible. It seems like we hear about those people from time to time. It seems like we see that in ourselves from time to time. Um, the less work we've done, then when we cycle back to where we are hungry or cold or not safe, we tend to uh, react to that pain. We take it really personal. We take the exposure very personally. We construct a sense of a somebody who's existentially threatened by the cold, by the hunger, by the pain, by the loss, by the loneliness or whatever. And then because of that, taking it personally, we can justify all kinds of actions. We can justify invading countries. We can justify, you know, sharing the secrets of our sister in a way that causes great harm to her. I mean, we can do all kinds of things. So I think there is a a hierarchy, but it's not so much that we've transcended that need once and for all, but I think it's that we understand it. We're not confused by the sort of fundamental neediness of the mind and body or its it's just its dependence on supportive factors. Maybe time for one more comment or yeah, Heather. Uh, just doing the back and forth piece that you suggested, I found I focus on my to do list as an example of that. And the way that my frog brain felt like you've got to get everything done now. And then some wisdom saying, are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. How do you know? Because my life depends on it. Your life depends on going to the dry cleaners. Yes, it does. <laughs> and just kind of paying attention to how much power I give to that. But also that uh, the confusion of what actually has to be done. Like what, what does my life actually depend on? And the construction of things that really can wait for days or weeks or maybe never. Um, and how, how that that is such a driver for me. And just, just noticing it, just getting curious about it, really gave me a lot of yeah. yeah, and related to that, you know, and this has real been at the heart of my practice over the years, is uh, that maintaining that thread of awareness of that deeper existential fear and uh, just existential pain. For some people, may have the flavor of fear. For other people, may have the flavor of not having enough, not being loved enough, something lacking. So whatever it might be, that existential feel. But if we maintain a thread of it, we're really, it's like, it's healing. It's not destructive to be feeling that existential pain. It's healing because the more we're able to, willing to feel it, the less we have to run from it by going to the dry cleaner when we don't actually need to go to the dry cleaner. Or having weight on that event of needing to get to the dry cleaner, needing to get the promotion at work, needing to have more money, 
It's just we can shed some of the psychological weight that we give to things because we, we shed it be precisely because we're willing to feel that existential pain, the pain of vulnerability. And if we're willing to feel that, then that pain doesn't get invested in these other activities of life. So then the decision whether we're going to, should go to the dry cleaner today or tomorrow isn't invested with this charge. And it can just, it can be weighed in a different way. Rebecca, you want to finish this off? I saw your hand up and then we'll end here. Okay. Hi everybody, I'm Rebecca. Um, I um, just wanted to share what happened to me when I was doing it. Um, I had the beast voice and the wise voice and the beast said, I have to go to the bathroom and the wise voice said, okay, I'm going to take you. You're going to have to wait a little bit. And then the beast said, and I have a stomach ache and the wise voice said, I'm sorry, I'll look more carefully at the bread. You know, I think it was a little moldy and I'll be more selective about the food. I'm sorry, I do that to you all the time. And then the beast said, I want to have a baby. And the wise voice, instead of being wise, said, you know, I want that too. <laughs> and so I realized that like, there's a point at which the um, primitive voice is so strong that I don't know what the wise response is. Like, yeah. There's no wise response. The wise voice is suddenly right there with the beast saying, I'm with you on that one. I don't yeah. know what to do. <laughs> you know? Yeah, thanks for sharing that. That's exactly what happens. Exactly as you described is the Wisdom gets seduced by the primitive voice. The wise, the wise movement in that would have been the willingness to feel the desire to have a child. Oh, I really get, I really get this strong desire to have a child. It feels like this. I care about that strong desire. So it's not for or against the desire. It's a willingness to hold it, like to create this. Wisdom creates the space that allows the primitive mind to be primitive and have these primitive genetic cultural desires to have a child, for example. It's a perfect, perfectly obvious one for most of us and especially probably the women, where it, it really is probably genetic. Yeah. So why don't we stretch our legs uh, for seven minutes or so, and then we'll come back and we're going to do a reflection and then break into small groups. So... Feel free to connect with each other. If you didn't get a name tag yet, you can get one now. If you didn't sign in, you can sign in. You can come back about five after. You know, I don't know if I've read that book. I've read several of his. Do you have a copy? Or you probably don't have a copy. I'm not sure, but it's like a different. You make yourself better. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. This would have been happy if they would have had meditation, because that's the quality of exercise. Yeah, yeah. Didn't have the technology. But I mean, we had a lot of uh, salvation background. Yeah. Which one? Uh, oh, Lewis Richmond. <coughs> yeah, M-O-N-D. Yeah, it's the first book. I think L-E-W-I-S, yeah. Let's see, I have it here. L-E-W-I-S, yeah, Lewis Richmond. Is it video online? Is it online? 
Yeah, a lot of the time. Because when I, in fact, all the time. I think yeah, it's an integ- It's a really an integration. If that's what wisdom does. It in- it includes the beast instead of being afraid. You see, the, the beast follows pain, responds to pain, but it responds to pain in a in a kind of clinical way, in a good way, like you're suggesting. But we get the, the more mature mind gets it frightened by. The pain. It wants. It wants to be clever. That's why Sisyphus is such a good myth, because that's what screwed him up. Is he got too clever, and so the gods punished him by making him push this rock up. Oh, he, he tricked them. You know, I forget. I was just reading it last night in Wikipedia. But you know. I feel like I might be kind of opposite because. No, no, I'm, I'm talking about an integration. Yeah. That that actually you need the beast in order to reveal the wisdom. It's like wisdom is exactly the mind or the heart that can say yes to the beast. You know, sort of include the beast. Instead of being kind of run unconsciously biased. Yeah, yeah, instead of being run unconsciously biased. Yeah. yeah, it's sort of, I know it sounds like a cliche, but, you know, to embrace it as nature, to embrace the facts of nature. You kind of do what needs to be done rather than overdo it or underdo it. Because I think in my case, I probably underdid the beast. Yeah, because I think half of us, or half of the time, we don't listen to it, and the other half, we exaggerated or we kind of uh, amplified in some way. Yeah, I mean, I actually... Fear the result of not paying attention but, but your job is to understand that, like to understand why you'd be afraid of it. Because that's what, you have to understand it to go to transform it so you don't have to hide from it. Well, I think you're not feeling competent to do it. What's required? To survive, whatever. Yeah. Who knows what? Uh, yeah, we had. Yeah. Uh, Krista was here as well as the uh, guy from um, the guy from England. Pretend that she's not that guy. Was that the we had uh, Rob Hopkins. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. So anyway, uh, so this year it's going to be a great happy ever Methodist. Uh, but when I was thinking of the beginning hour is having like a snapshot of like mid year on nineteen thirty five, two thousand twelve, and then twenty thirty. And you would have like a like the historical picture of Peru like that with all these trolleys and they and then like where our food was coming from 
and the uh, um, like how our money was being recycled. Really much money to California we were sending as much money out of the state for like oil or whatever. Um, and then looking currently, like how are we spending our money now? How much enjoyment are we getting from that money? Like looking at your household budget, this is what you spend for your your death machine, whatever, for your you know, various things. And then um, and then look at 2030, if you want to be like 80% private free, um, we might look at having, you know, the trolleys, like real local food, like what would be this, you know, how would the twin things work? Okay. Uh, <laughs> we, we would get different, different resource people who would like do the different research on like what, you know, the components. Uh, uh, but what I, I like to tell that is like you can see that our infrastructure is not set in stone. Like we used to have all these trolleys and everything. We didn't really have freeways, and then now we have certain this way, you know, and then we can change the idea. Yeah. Oh, yeah, let's go for it. There's something I want to check in with you more about. I'm learning that what's happening with the transition community and all that.
So this is the part where some of you, maybe a lot of you, will want to write some things down. Uh, we're going to do a reflection together, and then we're going to break into small groups. So uh, if you don't have a piece of paper, feel free to come up and get one, and a pen if you need. Here's what I thought would be useful. It's like a personal biography. I guess you call that autobiography. Um, in the area of money slash wealth, livelihood slash work, and success or failure. And there's going to be a lot of overlap. So it's as if, you know, we take the category of money and wealth and we're just <clears throat> reviewing our life. You can go in a chronological order if you want, beginning when you were a kid, just moving up until present day. Just scanning through your memory of particular events around money, around wealth. You might remember, you know, whatever it is that you collected when you were a kid. You know, or when you maybe you got an allowance, or just some relationship to money or wealth all the way through your life. Same with work. You know, maybe when you're real young, you know, work was something cool you got to do because you were old enough to do it. And then, you know, it was something you'd negotiate. Well, I'll do that, Dad, for $2 or whatever. And then on till jobs and all the different aspects of your relationship to work. And then the same thing with success. So we're making three lists in a sense, and you can even divide your paper into three if you want. And that's not all, but initially we're just, just it, all, it can almost be free association, like what comes to mind around money? What comes to mind around work, livelihood? What comes to mind around success? And then once we get some stuff down on the paper that 
somehow represent some spread of our lives, then we're going to go back to those particular events or experiences and reflect on what kind of attitudes, what was, what's our relationship. And you can, you can go back to the primitive versus the wise perspective. And like, how is this affected by that primitive beast, the vulnerable beast? Remember, the vulnerable beast isn't good or bad, it's just true. We are, part of what we are, who we are, is this beast that lives with vulnerability. It's just the way that it is. And there's also this capacity to open and accept and integrate vulnerability. And we call that wisdom, the wise one, you know, the wise elder versus the primitive beast. So you can look at each of these events in terms of uh, the attitude and views and wise elder versus primitive beast qualities surrounding involved with it. As you go through the money, you know, times of saving, times of being in debt, times of times of giving money away. as you reflect on work and livelihood, just having a sense of how you've related experiences you've had with meritocracy and competition, experiences of feeling exploited, oppressed, Times when the job was related to your identity, times when it had nothing to do with your identity, it was just a way to get money. success, I mean success at school, success at love, 
success with sports, with hobbies, just how the mind experiences success. Titles that you've received, awards, acknowledgements. The idea um, is that you're going to pick out a couple of these particular events or experiences around money, around work, around success, and be able to see it from both points of view. You know, the, the experience from the point of view of the hungry beast, the vulnerable beast, and uh, practice seeing it from a wise point of view. Like, how can your heart deeply understand, accept, include all what you remember around that experience? Putting it in the deepest, broadest perspective. Oh, of course. Of course it was like this. Of course you felt that way. Of course you were confused in that way. You reacted in that way. Of course. I care about this experience, this pain, this success.
So we'll take another two or three minutes. example, one thing you can be really interested in is the uh, personal experience of power that was related to your particular experience about money or a job or success. And like, what is, how is power interpreted from the point of view of the hungry beast? And how is power understood from that position, that place of wisdom? You know, and of course, your experience may not be about power. It may be just the opposite, the particular experience that you're reflecting on, where you feel felt disempowered or abused, oppressed. So what did that look like from the point of view of the frightened beast? And what did that feel like? What can that be? How can that be understood or held from the point of view of wisdom? You can get a sense of how you might share in the small group uh, that we're going to be breaking up into in a few minutes. You're just going to draw from a couple events or experiences that seem interesting and meaningful to you, and then just talk about how what you remember, both what you remember from that time, but also how you hold or relate or understand it now. And then you can use those two points of view, like, you know, to really access that place of vulnerability, not to be frightened or ashamed, because we all have it. We're all, all of us are frightened beasts, you know, that want to be warm and be fed and want to be safe. And so to talk about it from that point of view, and then to talk about it from the point of view of wisdom that understands that it's okay that there are hungry beasts everywhere. And that hungry beasts, you know, when they feel competitive, sometimes act competitively. (laughs) That's what hungry beasts do. And to talk about it from that perspective of acceptance and understanding. And anything that, you know, that this reflection, how it might inform how you go forward in life around money, around livelihood, around success, So if you haven't done the small group sharings before, uh, this one we're going to divide into groups of five. And I'll send you off to different parts of the building so you have, you know, relatively quiet space to have a conversation. And the idea would be one person would be the timer and everybody gets about three minutes. And it'd be nice if somebody goes significantly over, they should get a little message um, with a reminder, you know, make a face or (laughs) let them know. And during your three minutes, the idea is just to talk openly, right from your heart. If you run out of things to say, just sit in the silence, continue the reflection, because you might, after 15 seconds of silence, you might have more to say. 
So you get your three minutes, even if most of it is just held in silence, because you, in that moment, don't have anything to say. That's really okay. You get three minutes, and it's up to everybody to really make it okay that for there to be gaps of silence, where people you're just sort of holding the space as that person continues to reflect, and then they just pipe in if they have more to say later or not. And when we're listening, we're staying connected with, to the experience of the body. It really helps us be a better listener if we're grounded, aware of the body. If we're disconnected from the body, chances are we're disconnected from everything in the moment. If we're present and relaxed in the experience of the body, chances are we're connected and relaxed with what the person is saying. So this really helps us to be receptive. And we're not giving the person any feedback or asking clarifying questions as they're speaking. So we're going to, everyone will get about three minutes, and then there will be about five minutes just for an open discussion. That's a perfect time for asking clarifying questions if you have some about what somebody shared or making a comparison at that point. Oh, what you said reminded me of this and things like that. We'll save that for the end. So everybody gets three minutes, then five or maybe even a little bit more at the end. So the whole thing will take less than 30 minutes. Five times three is 15. Yeah, and then about uh, 10 minutes for the sharing and the transition time. So, yeah, about 25 minutes. Okay, does that make sense? So we'll count off by 12. I think we have 60 people here today. And uh, remember your number. <laughs> One. Two. Three. Four. Five. One, you have six people in your group, and uh, why don't you use uh, Shelley's office? And you know, a lot of the groups might need to go get some folding chairs from downstairs. So that's the front office, and then uh, Todd's working. Oh, Todd's in there. So you can use my office, and then you need to get my keys. And then two, three, and four. Well, let's try two groups in the community room. So two and three. You go in the community. Four and five will be in the lobby. Uh, six on the white couch. Seven can be in the coat room of the basement. You might want your coats if you're down in the basement. And just put some chairs in that coat area in the basement. Uh, seven at the table in the workshop, which is in the basement, right underneath the community room. There's a table there. All six of you can sit around there. Um, so that's six. So seven, eight, nine, ten. What? Seven at the table? Okay, so eight, nine, ten, 
11, and 12. Does that make sense? Anybody not know where they're going? White couch. Oh, it's right under here. Yeah, next to the library. Okay. I think seven is on the table down underneath the community room. And the coat room, too. Oh, I thought six was in the coat room. Yeah. Six is on the white couch. Okay, wait. Okay, so we got to stop. Okay. Let's do it again. So one in my office, two and three in the community room, uh, four and five in the lobby, right? Six in the white couch, seven in the uh, coat room downstairs, <clears throat> eight around the table. Shoot. <laughs> Nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Thank you for being attentive. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.